This is No Training Wheels, and I'm your host, Rob Kelly. Welcome to part three of our episode with Rob Laybourne, the Armed Forces Cycling Classic Race Director, and also the president of the National Association of Professional Race Directors. In this episode, we talk about the NAPRD and about the future of professional bike racing. The NAPRD, as Rob will explain, is an organization that was created a couple years ago to help professional race directors come together as a group and share ideas and also advocate on behalf of their organizations. In this episode, we talk a little bit about money. We talk about additional revenue streams like the pay-per-view model that Rob has with uh, Monumental Sports. And we also talk about the place for sports gambling in the American bike racing scene. I do hope you enjoy We've arrived at Chapter 3, the part where we're going to discuss growing professional racing within the United States. Because obviously Armed Forces is designed as a professional race. It's to showcase the elite men and women in the country, right? And and the world, in fact, yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, this year, one of the top athletes was from uh, Mexico, correct? Correct. He's going on, I think, to compete uh, in Europe at the UCI level. Wasn't that part of the plan for this year for him? Which, who are you speaking of? You're testing me now because I remember listening to the announcer during the course of Clarendon while I was enjoying my uh, founding farmers. Yeah, for for instance, we have, um, you know, the TIBCO team is here, you know, and they race internationally for UCI. And this is one of the few non-UCI races they do in America because of, we, we run it essentially like a UCI race. We, you know, we try to have all the pageantry try to have all the key elements, you know, that makes it valuable as, you know, what, what UCI thinks is important, but also as a very uh, entertainment uh, product, you know. So we have to entertain our fans our, and, and provide ROI for our sponsors. So from an international standpoint, one of the things that we also recognize with the Clarendon Cup, and, you know, what we do in, in, in Clarendon is over half the winners are from different countries, I mean, over the years, and, you know, both men's and women. So we have... You know, a tremendous amount of you know um, exposure around the world for athletes to come in. You know, they this is this is an event that you know it's not just dominated by American racers. So it's American sport, let's call it. But you know, we we do we do um, attract some of the top international crit racers to come and do this. Armed Forces is part of the National Association of Professional Race Directors, or it's a it's a member of Correct. that organization. What's the website for that? NAPRD? NAPRD.org, yeah. What is the National Association of Professional Race Directors? When I first was on the NRC, so the National Race Calendar was, and the, the Saturn Pro Road Tour. When, so in 99, I was invited to be on you know, that, the elite national calendar. I was a you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, you know, wet behind the ears, you know, went to a national... A meeting to you know kick off the campaign and that was my first time that I met somebody else that did what I did at the level that I was you know been asked to, to deliver so again I I was coming from running the Clarendon Cup droopy banners you know hay bells and you know snow fencing to being to playing on a national event so I was much in awe but I met you know people like Gene Dixon who started the Athens Twilight Race or you know Jack um, Jack Brennan, who puts on the Tour of the Gila, you know, people that have been around for decades already putting on events that are w- well known. 
And, and even early on, we recognized that we all kind of shared these, these common, you know, experiences. And we also somewhat felt like there was us and then there was them. The thems were those in our sport that wanted to really hold the UCI races, the tour um, at the time, the Philly, you know, the Philly uh, race um, the tour of San Francisco, or the San Francisco Grand Prix, the tour of Missouri's, the Georgias, all those kinds of UCI, the the European model of racing that's really popular versus, you know, the American racing, right? The the Criterium scene. There was always that, you know, kind of us and them. And then over the years, that us and them also became pretty strongly ingrained within USA Cycling. And so a lot of us um, race directors you know, we're getting frustrated by not feeling like we were being heard and feeling like USA Cycling was a lot of ways managing the NRC or other, you know, whatever they had, were kind of dealing with us a little bit like whack-a-mole, right? So like, oh, Rob's complaining, we'll, we'll deal with him and then he's okay. And then now someone else is complaining, we'll deal with them. As long as they kept us separated, they could handle it and they could kind of do what they wanted to do but when we got together once a year, we're like, you know, well, we don't really like that. And so myself and a few of the other race directors were like, you know, we should really kind of form some kind of association. At the time that idea came up, I was, you know, again, back in the aerospace defense industry, I was involved. I live in D.C. as, as you do, too. This is the city of associations, right? There's an association for everything under the sun. I was involved in a number of them. And so and I saw the value of competitors and or partners coming together in a way that associations can offer. And so I reached out to the other mem- the other race directors and said, hey, you know, we should form a group. Let's call an association. You know, we can, you know, we can together have a better voice and, and getting our messaging or our opinions heard. And, and so, you know, we, we, we started, it kind of had some fits and starts. And after a couple of early initial attempts, we finally got off the ground. It's been, I think, gosh, I don't know, seven years now, six, seven years, uh, that we're, you know, an official Illinois nonprofit. Marco Colbert, who runs the Intelligentsia Cup, he's our treasurer. He got it set up. I'm the current president. We have Mike Weiss from the St. Louis race, the Gateway Cup, is the vice president. You're naming all races that are part of my regular calendar now. <laughs> Good. And, uh, and let's see, I'm trying to, who am I missing? I got the, the secretary is Bill Koch, who is one of the partners of Tour of the Dairyland. And so uh, America's Dairyland. So we have, you know, good representation of events. You know, again, what the, our main goal and purpose is to provide a forum in which we can talk. I think that whenever you can create an opportunity for people that involved in the same kinds of things to get together and talk, you break down barriers, you identify issues, you resolve things, and you create an opportunity to have a voice with a number of people of, of, of like interest. And so, you know, we, our vision is to, you know, help each other to help raise the bar for what we're trying to do and to help USA Cycling understand what we're trying to offer and help them be successful. We don't want to have it be an us versus them kind of situation. We want this whole ecosystem, you know, the, all the players and components of our sport to work 
better together, like in a good breakaway, right? We need to take a poll. We need to work together so we can all be more successful. We want to work with the teams. We want them to be successful. We want USA Cycling to, to, to be successful. We think that we do things well. We would like to see the Tour of Utah's and Tour of California's be successful. And how do we all work together better to really help each other out? We want to see the industry be more successful. Um, I was at a, a, a trade show at the, you know, back when uh, Vegas the Interbike, um, there was a, a panel where some industry folks were on it, and they're, you know, not very enthused about bike racing right now. And, and you know, it's interesting that they would say that, yet they're still, Trek is big into the European scene, and they see better return in racing by having, you know, running a European squad. I'm not sure why that's the case, but... But then they also Trek does things like Nike. Or space. the Waterloo Cup, <clears throat> the Trek Cup uh, Which for is in their backyard. Yeah. And, you know, there's other, I don't know what, you know, if they're selling more cyclocross bikes out of that or not. But We're at this kind of interesting inflection point in American bike racing. And I think you're, you're seizing on it here. We've seen a shrinking number of pro teams. Uh, while the talent base has been expanding exponentially. You've got so many great young riders coming into the into the into the field, and you've got this cadre of 27, 28, 29, 30 year olds, and even 40 year olds who are just just absolutely crushing it. So you've got a huge talent base. You've seen races close, while at the same time you see a race like Clarendon or Athens or some of the USA Crits races stepping up their technology games and making a bigger, better professional experience. It leaves you questioning where where are we going? We've got so much interest in the sport for those people who are a part of it. We've got so much talent. We've got money that comes in, but we're losing opportunities at the same, at the same rate. And people talk occasionally about road racing dying, and the statistics may or may not back that up when you get down to a level of granularity around the country. But where do you see us going as a, a professional set of organizers, the elites, the top-level folks? I think that there's a couple questions and hypotheses that we can kind of kick around with that. I think that what I've seen over the years, I mean, even when I first started the Clarendon race, right, if how many pro teams, how many pro-registered teams were there really, right? And that number goes up and down. I think that there's different influencers that have on that number, so... You know, why does a team want to register as a pro team versus an elite amateur team? There's, you know, really the bottom line is it's a, it's about a $20,000 cost, right? To go from an elite amateur team, you know, to have your kits made, work on your ride bikes and have, you know, go to races. To be registered through USA Cycling as a UCI registered pro team and the, the, the lowest tier, the pro conti or whatever it is. You know, you basically have to pay a $20,000 bank guarantee and, you know, a fee into that to be registered. So what do you get for that is to be a team, right? And what events does that get you into that you otherwise aren't able to do? And that number is pretty small now, right? So, uh, you know, for the most part, like a Cliff Bar, for instance, I've talked to that team director. I mean, he's he. it's not worth it for him to pay that extra fee because... He just doesn't go to tour of Utah, basically. That's like the only event that he can't get into today that he would be eligible for is that pro Conti team. So is it worth it for that additional fund for his sponsor to not get into that event? Or it, are they better off taking that those resources at a much lower, you know, budgetary 
you know, impact to go to these races they go to now. And so that's kind of the part of that equation. I think that the environment has changed over the years. I think that, you know, some of the unintended consequences of decisions that were made that I think for good reasons, like USA Cycling taking over the pro national championships and what they've done to that, again, has, I think the unintended consequences is it reduces the kind of events that a team would be encouraged or motivated to be a USAID registered team to do because you can be an amateur team now and go to those events. Whereas in the past you had to be a pro team and they were run at events that were successful, that were well attended, that were the Philly for instance was one of, was the pro road championship. It was an international event. It was a scene. It was, you know, your whole team sponsorship could be made up by going to that one day event. But you didn't have to have a million dollars like you do to be a pro team to go to Tour of California or have the chance to be selected to go to California. You only needed like $50,000 or $25,000 to have a team to get into Philly. Downers Grove, which, you know, that was your first bike race. You had to be a pro team to be in the show in Downers Grove. So... Cliff Bar couldn't do it today. They would have to be a pro team to get into that event. It was international, but it was still a pro event. I think that when USA Cycling, they saw the, an opportunity at the time to take those events and bring them into their own tent because, well, we can make money putting those national championships on because look how much money Downers Grove and Philly's making. And because the rest of the world has their national championships held the weekend before the tour. We should do that too. And by the way, we should make it U.S. only because that's what all the other countries do. So that was their reasoning. But the unintended consequences are you've now diluted those events. You now created new events that compete with others for a, a, a smaller piece of the number of teams that are out there. And you eliminated or reduced the motivation for a team to be professional. And so do I want, would I like to see a race where the national championship is crowned because it's the first American to cross the line because it's only American? That's a great, that'd be wonderful to have, but we don't have, I don't believe, a pro field that can support that. So we already have amateur nationals. If we're going to have a pro national championship, it needs to be pro riders. And so I think, again, we need to go back to, I think, that kind of model and using regular existing events. USA Cycling then can take the money they spend on producing those events and putting it back into the sport. So we have elite amateur nationals. And then we've got pro nationals, which are run almost on consecutive weekends. And in a certain case, there's athletes at the elite amateur nationals who suddenly magically appear in pro amateur nationals, which is a disservice to the people who are amateurs who aren't showing up. And then you get to the pro championship and you're missing this year, arguably the best bike racers in the country, at least in the criterium, and the best bike racing team in the country in, in Legion of LA and Justin and Corey Williams. 
they, you know, Justin was invited, but his, I guess his team wasn't invited or something to that effect. So he decided not to show up, you know, because he's part of a team. Right. How, how are we running these? We don't have a clear definition of what it means to be a pro and what it means to be an amateur anymore because half the guys in the amateur criterium were ones. Or in the pro criterion, we're cat ones. Where are we going with that? Well, I mean, you tell me. I mean, to me, I don't think that's a good direction. That's my point is that the unintended consequences of USA Cycling taking over and changing the model has resulted in this, what I believe is a dilution of what professional, the top tier should be. I think that, you know, it's great to, to you know, have them race together at uh, events around the country, but... I think that we want to encourage and motivate teams to want to step up. And I think that what we have right now is an environment where a team, for instance, um, early on when Tour California was just a a, a 2.8C event, any Pro Conti team could apply to get on and, and a lot of them got in, right? So a lot of Pro teams made their whole year because... They justified their existence to their sponsor because we're going to be in Tour of California. So it was a you know seven-day stage race, national television. That's an easy way to get your sponsorship. But those teams, as I you know said, they they don't have million-dollar budgets to be a pro Conti team. That's the you know tier three. I, I always forget what they are. What they're, I think that World Tour, isn't it pro or continental? And I think continental pro, and then pro, pro Conti. Conti. Okay. So Pro Conti is the that's the first rung into the UCI world of professional racing, and that's the only we don't have US Pro anymore. So US Pro used to be that what came that's what came out of Philly, and so the organization that used to run the Philly race, and um, they created American professional racing called US Pro. Eventually, that got brought into US US Cycling Federation and now USA Cycling. And it's, it's now evolved and, you know, it's, it's a whole other history lesson. But uh, to, we need to encourage teams to want to be a professional and run professionally. I mean, that's my motivation. I want to I deliver an event that is on the caliber of what anyone will consider to be a professionally run professional event. And I want teams to also want to aspire to do that. And I think that our current environment is getting back to the Tour of California when it was at 1HC, you could apply to, to go and get accepted as a pro Conti team. When they, go, when they went world tour and only allowed the continental teams to apply and maybe get in, that raised the bar far beyond the reach of almost any American team today. There just aren't enough reasons to be a pro Conti team. And so as a result, some of the teams that have taken that approach don't even race in America. You know, Team Illuminate, how many times have they started a race in America? Probably kind of one hand. They race over in Korea or China because they're getting paid to go do those races. If we had other events that they could do, I think that would help. Um, But I think the overall environment is challenged. And so um, I don't think it's a broken model per se. I think that one of the things that, that I would like to, and hopefully this association can help with that, is to help share and understand our new environment we're living with. It's not like it used to be, right? So the justifications for sponsorships are evolving or changing. You need to have activation. You can't just rely on the the 3X value of a picture of your 
rider winning a race in Velo News. I mean, that's just not going to cut it anymore. So you need to be more educated about what sponsors are looking for. And I think the challenge today with the teens is there's lots of really good events out there they can race in. But I think they're challenged into delivering back value to their sponsors. And certainly for a a continental team to deliver a multi-million dollar value for them, it's really hard. I mean, you you know, Arapaho, the Hincapie team is going to go away. I mean, they they thought for sure that after winning a stage in the Tour of California that they'd be selected the next year. So they, you know, got um, Holoesco to kick in a million bucks to be on that continental level. And guess what happened? They didn't get selected. Why would you want to even do that? So I think, you know, we need to look at that model, that part of it, and what can we do better, but also to educate the teams and, and let them understand, you know, what they need to know, what tools can we give them as events, for instance, to help them with their sponsors. I, I don't think we, we're, we do enough, frankly, in our world of, of promoters to really give value back to the teams, at least the tools or the, the data to help them. One of the things we've been talking about a little bit is revenue sources, revenue sources other than sponsorship. Because there's only so many times you can go back to the well and ask a corporation for more money or to rely on, as Tennessee Williams said, the kindness of strangers in certain cases. Finding ways to bring or create revenue within the system itself. Uh, one of the things you have done with Monumental Sports Network is the, the pay-per-view. And I know USA Crits does that as well because mm-hmm. I've paid for the USA mm-hmm. Crits subscription. One of the things that I don't think anybody's talked about, at least recently, has been the concept of sports gambling. It's now, mm-hmm. according to the United States Supreme Court, mm-hmm. legal uh, if a state wants to allow it. And so we've got this untapped avenue of resources. Do you see sports gambling as something that could bring money into the bike racing universe? Because that's where it started. Yeah, no, for sure. So I think um, the answer is yes. I I think that's an opportunity that we do see. Um, I want to step back a little bit. You talked about the live streaming that we're doing, you know, the pay-per-view. That's it's still, I think, in, in, in its infancy. And I think the challenge that we have um, is, a, you know, our event, for instance, you know, I was very proud of what Monumental did this year. I really thought it was a, a, an amazing production. The, the entertainment value, the production value was really, I think, um, set a new standard. And, and I think that the challenge that, you know, USA Crits has a, a great concept and I, and I, have nothing but respect for Gene and his organization for what he's done over the years with his products and the races. But I, I think what's really important that that I haven't seen with though that product is a continued evolution of increased value and, and so or, or production value. And so I think that there's still that USA Crits is still relying, you know, pretty heavily on a consistent technology and production value. And so um, they don't really have the budgets and the wherewithal to, you know, kind of bring to the event like we've enjoyed with Monumental with the, the, the long lenses and some of the other technology that they have. We, we bring in a zipline camera, which I think is really a, a nice feature that really showcases, you know, a, a small component, you know, that brings more entertainment value. And so those, it, it's, it's important. And I think that I know Gene struggles with trying to generate revenue from his pay-per-view model and he has a subscription-based model. Um, we've tried that um, with the Monumental platform. 
we get decent viewership. We sold hundreds of views, you know, you know, pay, uh, paid viewers, which is okay. Not where I'd like to, to, to see it, but I think it's also because we're so new in that world. I think that most people that do watch live streams are used to not paying for them, but they're also used to not paying for live streams that are also aren't very good. I, I, the classic, what can you find on a hijacked Dutch language channel to watch Eurosport? Well, that's a different model too, where, where, where you, I think some of the international races are probably far better. You can certainly do that. Um, but to, you know, where can you watch American crit racing on live stream? The, the opportunities are either, again, they're very low budget and so you can't do a lot with that. And not to criticize them, but the, that's kind of a standard that's been set. And so I think people's expectations, if they watch a crit that's live stream, their expectations are going to be what they've experienced before. And so what we need to do is show them what, you know, a $10 price point is going to get you. And I think, you know, I, Monumental, I thought, did a, an amazing job, um, you know, with, with their whole production. And they're just getting better and better at it. That leads me to another, the, the next, where the question was about gambling. Monumental Sports, as you know, owns the Wizards, the Caps, the Brigade, other arena football teams, and, and they have the Capital One Arena. I know that uh, Ted Leonis has been on the record, the Washington Post, talking about where he would envision gambling in his, you know, in Capital One Arena. So they're talking about having, I think it's the, the Velvet Turtle, that location to be kind of the gambling um, a book, you know, for, for Capital One. You know, we have an event in, in, our, in Virginia, so I think Virginia is a little bit behind D.C. in terms of gambling. But I do believe that, you know, the combination of the sport, the broadcast, and some technologies that are coming to play, I think can be beneficial. And so I think in a three- to five-year window, I think you'll see, you know, uh, opportunities for people to, to gamble at our event. It wouldn't be one of my podcasts if I didn't throw statistics at some point in time or numbers at some point in time. So this is the final question area. We live in the third most populous country in the world. We have the highest GDP in the world. We have one of the top five land masses in the world. Now, a lot of that is Alaska, and there's not a lot of bike racing that happens in interior Alaska, although I've been told that the Fairbanks group ride scene is legit. But we rely on this national calendar in bike racing, this national scope. So you've got guys and girls who are traveling from Rochester to D.C. or from Rochester to Winston-Salem to Wilmington to D.C. to California to Chicago to Boston to Houston to all these huge areas Mm -hmm. and covering a large distance. And that costs a lot of money. And we've got a large talent base that may or may not be employed in the industry that they want to be employed at full time. What's stopping us from adopting more of a, a regional scope? You know, football, basketball, baseball, all the major cash sports have divisions, conferences. You don't see the Jets, you know, traveling every single weekend out to the West Coast to compete or the Bears or, or any other team. Why are we relying on going coast to coast as opposed to focusing local efforts locally, supplementing with these superstars? Boy, that's, uh, that's, you know, there's a lot of different, I think, pieces on that. 
statement. Um, you know, I, I've kicked around the idea of having a number of events that are connected, that each event kind of has their home team, so to speak. I think that you could, and there are, there are certainly models, people have done this before, you know, different series that are locally run, regionally run. Bike racing, you know, it's a, it's a spectacle. It's a, it's a spectator event. And how teams participate in them and, you know, it's a team sport, but, you know, it's, it's not really tabulated or the results aren't really shown as teams necessarily. It's really, you know, the individual who wins it versus, you know, that's what's shown first versus the team classification, you know. So it's a team event, but it's really kind of a showcase of, you know, an individual wins it. Um, you know, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. You know, it's, it's a, what's motivating me as a race director you know, I'm an individual, I'm an independent contractor, let's say, you know, in, in, a, in a larger scheme of a bunch of independent individuals, right, running their own events around the country. I think that if you had a centralized ownership of a sport, of whatever you want to call it, I think you could do something more that, you know, could be segregated by regions or teams or, or so forth. But that's I don't see that happening anytime soon because I don't think anyone's got that, the model in the palm of their hand that can offer an investor or investment group or, you know, someone to sort of say, hey, you can own cycling, you know, do this and this is what we could do. I think there's been a lot of, you know, there's there's organizations that, that put on events more so than like what I do. I mean, there's Mon- um, Medalist, for instance, you know, does UCI style races. They used to do Tour California. There's, of course, ASO, who now is also part owner of Tour California. I mean, there's certainly players like that, but the models, you know, if you look at the other sports, whether it's hockey or, um, you know, soccer, or basketball, you know, any of those sports, you know, they all have kind of ownership groups and, you know, governing governance that's, you know, that, that owns it. Um, NASCAR, you know, again, that was a family run business until like, I think recently. Um, and so I think that's, you know, if we could find that, with cycling, I think you you know there's a lot you could you could do, but then I also think about you know is that a two edged sword? Do you lose a lot of the interest of what drives people to want to be in the sport? Right? I mean, like I want to be an independent guy, put my own race on, I can do that, I can be my own boss. I mean, that's I think interests people or you know run a team. I think if if you had central ownership, you may lose some of that. Um, what I think the sport offers some people or what drives them. But again, I guess maybe it's a new model that could be considered. So I, I think that the other, you talked about the, the size of America. I think that's one of the reasons that, and this has been talked about for a long time, one of the reasons that the UCI model doesn't work well in, in our geographical configuration. Because if you go to Europe... You can race every day, and it's a train ride away from the next race, you know. And so you're very small, you know, in, in the whole region of France and Italy and Germany and, you know, all those, even the, the Norways and the, the Scandinavian countries, they're, they're all pretty close. Whereas, you know, here it's thousands of miles, and it's not a train. It's a, it's, you have to flight. So it's the, the cost does, does go up dramatically. Um, but, I, again, I think that if we can help the teams understand how to generate return for their sponsors, if the events can work better with the teams to generate that return, if we can help develop and create new revenue streams, I think that, you know, we can, 
build on the success that we have today. I think there's, you know, dozens of events around the country. And look at our NAPRD membership. And we have over 400 years of tradition. You know, if you count every year that all these events have been taking place, I mean, that's a lot of success. And so, you know, I don't think that our sport's going anywhere anytime soon. Um, I think it just needs some, a little bit better guidance and maybe some better vision about where we can go. Well, on that note, I think we've reached the end. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of No Training Wheels. I hope you've enjoyed this three-part interview that we had with Rob Laybourne. I'll admit it it was a long interview, but it was a tremendously valuable and interesting one for me. I learned a lot about how professional race directors come together and the way that they think about the product that they have and the value that they are trying to bring not just to their own sponsors, but to the sponsors of the teams that come as well. We have four more episodes this season on No Training Wheels, and each one of them is a season finale in and of itself. Our next episode is with Colin Reuter of Road Results or Cross Results or any kind of results that you would like to have when it comes down to bike racing. Colin talks to us about the ranking systems that he helped create, why he thinks they're valuable, why he thinks sometimes we take ourselves a little too seriously, and also shares some of his thoughts on where we're going with upgrades and what are ways that we can potentially revamp the upgrade system After that, we sit down and talk with nutritionist and coach Kristen Arnold of Butcher Box Racing and also of Source Endurance about what it takes to fuel the athlete's body the correct way. And then the next two episodes after that are just stellar, absolutely stellar. CX Hairs himself, he will be here in the No Training Wheels studio to talk about cyclocross, to talk about society, culture, to talk about everything, as Bill often does with such charm and success. And then our last interview of the season is with Justin Williams of the Legion of LA. I'll be sitting down and talking with him at the Gateway Cup in St. Louis about what has been a record-setting season for him and where he hopes to see his own career and also the movement that he and his brother Corey and Everybody who's on Legion of LA has started and where it's going. As always, please like, share, subscribe this podcast. We're available anywhere that you can get your podcast, including uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. Leave us a review. Tell us how we're doing. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to hear what you guys think uh, about the work that we're doing here on No Training Wheels. Until next time, see you out of MacArthur Boulevard.